welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If left to myself, I will bring it all to ruin. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill me. Fill this congregation with your presence. Give us open and listening hearts. Give us hearts of compassion, especially for our persecuted family around the world. Lord, I pray that you would activate us for prayer this morning through the preaching of your word. And you would direct our actions resulting from the preaching of this word as we go into the week ahead of us, Lord. Show us how you want us to care for our brothers and sisters around the world. So come, Holy Spirit, and do a work among us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the day, uh, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It's one of those things that we need to talk about. It's not uh, something that's particularly lighthearted at all. We we do need to hear about it. And in just a few minutes, our prayers of the people are going to be offered up as a litany. Now, maybe you've never prayed a litany before, but it is an intense, responsive prayer on behalf of... This litany is on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffered the loss of uh, property who suffer imprisonment and beatings and torture and, yes, even death, all because they are followers, simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to set apart a special day to focus on persecuted Christians, first of all, because these are our family. These are our brothers and sisters in the faith. They need our prayers and they need our encouragement. They need to know that they have not been forgotten and they have not been abandoned. But we also need to hear about that they're uh, about our brothers and sisters who are persecuted in the church around the world because persecution is growing in scope and it is growing in severity in the last few years. According to an exhaustive report ordered by the British Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt and then issued this June, issued in June by the Anglican Bishop of Truro, followers of Jesus are the single most persecuted uh, religious group on planet Earth. And it's disproportionate. It's not just because there are more Christians than any other religion. Uh, The report continues, the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide levels. The main impact of genocidal acts against Christians, it says, is exodus, and that Christianity faces being wiped out from parts of the Middle East. Think of that. Where Christianity began, it is now nearly wiped out in many places. Evidence shows not only the geographical spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity. And just last year in 2018, in Nigeria alone, in in just the country of Nigeria, 3,731 people were killed because of their Christian faith. 3,731 believers were killed because they followed Jesus. That was their crime. Many more were forced to abandon their homes and villages to escape mostly Islamist extremists. And in that context, in the context of worldwide uh, persecution and our focus on prayer for the persecuted church, we actually come to a, a very appropriate text. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
This morning we hear about a young church. The church in Thessalonica was a young church that was experiencing persecution, it says in verse 4. Uh, Paul writes that they were suffering for the kingdom of God in verse 5. And that they were afflicted by their fellow countrymen. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So here's why we need, this is why we would take the time to focus on the persecuted church today. First of all, we not only need to pray for them, yes, we do need to pray for them, but this is why we need to focus on them at Christ Church this morning. We need to learn from the persecuted church. The persecuted church in Thessalonica in AD 45 or AD 50, and from the persecuted believers around the world today, we need to learn from them. We need to sit at the feet of the body of Christ that is wounded and bleeding this morning because of their faithfulness and hear them speak to us. Now, why do we need to learn from the persecuted church? Well, because persecution has always, always, always been a component of following Jesus Christ. Whether it is the minor hardship of being reviled or losing friends, you know, maybe even suffering that, that most uh, deeply painful of all things, being unfriended on Facebook, <laughs> or losing a job, or the more severe trials of suffering physical violence, imprisonment, or death, persecution is a part of following Jesus Christ. But in America, we don't really believe that. We think that it would be exceptional or unusual to suffer simply for following Jesus that maybe people who suffer for following Jesus in our country are just uncouth or they're socially awkward. John Piper says that we need to hear about this, that we need to think about this because, and these are his words. That's right, we talk about John Piper here, not just about him, we read from him. We're not ashamed of that Reformed Baptist pastor. We love that guy. He says, the Christian church in America suffers, suffers, from about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. Since the Christian ethos has been dominant, it has also been a pathway to success. And what I mean by suffering, that we are suffering from 350 years of dominance and prosperity, is that this has deeply ingrained in us a massively unbiblical mindset namely a mindset of at-homeness, at-homeness in this world and in this age. This, he says, has not been good for us, he continues. And so we have developed a form of Christianity to support this ingrained expectation of acceptance and comfort, security, and prosperity. This form of Christianity begins by focusing on our felt needs not our eternal ones that we may not even be aware of. And it makes its appeal on the basis that Christianity will make your life a lot better for us in this world. It has not been a call to suffer as an alien, but a call to prosper as a respected citizen and to be very indignant and angry if someone reveals our Christianity as a liability and not an asset. Brothers and sisters, persecution for following Jesus is a normal part of the Christian life, and it is vital that we wrap our heads around it. Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, 
said this would be a component of following him. John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also, also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Not only did our Lord teach this as a part of the Christian life, the apostles also uh, uh, taught this as well. As a matter of fact, uh, when Paul and Barnabas were traveling throughout the ancient world, the ancient Hellenistic world there in the Mediterranean, uh, through parts of now what would be Macedonia and Greece and then Turkey and places like that, they preached that the church would be suffering from this as well. And let me just read Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and following. When Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Here's what it says. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And if all this was not clear enough, Uh, St. Paul even makes a Bible promise out of it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul promises, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Standing on the promises of God. The ultimate source of persecution is this. We have a spiritual enemy who hates us and wants to destroy us. Satan and the fallen angels hate us and want to destroy us. That's where persecution comes from. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Human persecutors, human afflictors are merely the pawns and puppets of our true adversary, the devil. And we need to remember that. The persecuted church, we need to learn from him because they teach us that as Christians, we can respond to our persecutors with love and forgiveness Because, listen, this is why. This is why we can respond with love and forgiveness and not with vengeance and anger and hatred. We can respond with love and forgiveness because we are confident that the living God will judge our afflictors. We don't have to. That job does not belong to us. Listen again to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It's on page 989, I think, in your pew Bible, if you want to look at it, 989 in the pew Bible. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, Paul writes, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also prospering? No, suffering. Since indeed God considers it just 
to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Who is doing the payback? Not us. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, this is at the last day, with His mighty light. I want you to picture this in your mind. This is not Jesus in the manger. This isn't sweet baby Jesus wrapped all up in swaddling clothes, whatever a swaddle is. Listen to what this is. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, what will He do? Listen, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, we get squeamish when we hear the Scriptures speak of God's wrath and vengeance and punishment, but we cannot escape these things. They are written in Scripture. This is a part of the canon of Scripture. This is authoritative, and we must receive it. This language of God repaying affliction and inflicting vengeance and and punishing with eternal destruction those who do not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, it just sounds so gauche so vulgar, so off-putting to our oh-so-highly-evolved ears. Our post-Christian, post-modern Western ears. Now, there are reasons for that. I mean, the language itself is a little scary. But I think in part it's due to this. It is due to the moral innervation. What does that mean? It means to have your nerve taken out. Moral innervation the moral decadence of our Western secular society. It is not, if we want to congratulate ourselves on this point, we need to be disabused of the notion, because it is not because we have become so much more peaceful and pacifistic as a people. The open talk of killing unwanted newborns this year, we've just heard it, the open talk of killing unwanted newborns tell us that We cannot have progressed to a more morally advanced state. Who kills unwanted newborns? Savages kill unwanted newborns. Thus, our society is a society of technologically advanced savages. The reason we don't like this in the aggregate as a a culture we don't like this vengeance language, is that we have lost moral vigor and clarity as a people. We're squeamish about considering that there may be a God who will punish evil and injustice. Indeed, we're confused about what constitutes evil and injustice. We lack the capacity for lucid moral reasoning, and we are the people who dumbed ourselves down to lack that capacity. We don't want there to be a God who judges and brings vengeance against evil because we know that if that is true, it invites our own iniquity to be judged. So far from religion being the opium of the people in our post-Christian world, as uh, Polish Polish poet Szeslaw Milos has said, he said this, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. A true opium of people is a belief in nothingness after death. 
the huge solace of thinking that for all our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we are not going to be judged. Brothers and sisters, this actually is good news. We hear those words that Christ will come again with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why it's good news. It makes me want to run for mercy to the cross. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Where I can go to the cross where all of God's righteous anger, His wrath, has been poured out and received. The cup has been drunk down to the dregs of God's wrath by our Lord Jesus Christ. He accepted that chalice. And now we can flee to Him for refuge. And we don't have to face that day as people cowering from fear of God's wrath, but as beloved sons and daughters. It's also, this scary language is also good news because there will be justice for the persecuted. There will be justice for the persecuted. And if you have been hunted down and beaten and dispossessed and maybe even killed because all you ever did was love Jesus and love your neighbor, that was your crime, then you have experienced the zenith of injustice. The persecuted church desperately needs to hear the word that that injustice will not go unanswered. They need the solace of knowing that the evil done to them will not go without recompense. This is also good news because it tells us that God will bring perfect justice and that that means if God is the one bringing perfect justice, listen, we, the, if the persecuted church around the, around the world, or when we experience it, we can respond with love. We can respond to persecution in love. You see, the Bible does not teach that vengeance in and of itself is wrong and that it should never happen. Rather, only that vengeance is the, listen, the sole prerogative of the infinitely just, infinitely loving, all-knowing, almighty God. Humans, you and I, are not qualified to mete out personal vengeance because our own judgment is marred by sin and we need mercy. We don't need to be meting out vengeance. We can, when we can trust God with final judgment, we can respond with the love of God in the face of persecution. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. He's just quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Beloved, Paul writes, never, never. When is never? Never is never. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, this is what God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In 155 AD, when the soldiers of Marcus Aurelius Verus came to arrest Polycarp, that great Christian leader of the early church, the, uh, the historian Eusebius, writing in the third century, says that 
Polycarp ordered a table to be laid for his arresting soldiers. He said, lay a table for them immediately. And then he invited them to eat as much as they liked. He only asked for a single hour in return in which he could pray. When Polycarp later stood in the Colosseum, accused and surrounded by the jeering crowds, the governor pressed him to recant his faith, deny Christ. Instead, this man, who himself had been discipled by the apostle John, said this, For 86 years I have been Christ's servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? As they were preparing to burn him alive, Polycarp offered up prayers of faith and praise. Not vengeance, love. We learn learn from the persecuted church. We learn from the Thessalonians that Jesus is glorified in his persecuted people. Jesus Christ, listen, is made personally present and he is lifted up when those who love him remain faithful even when they are being afflicted. Jesus is personally present. We see him in his persecuted church. We see his self-giving love to the point of his laying down, to the laying down of their lives for a fallen world. We see that in the persecuted church. We see the cross of Christ in the persecuted church. And that's why in Acts chapter 4, you remember, uh, I mean, excuse me, Acts chapter 9, remember when Paul is on the road to Damascus? And he's getting ready to uh, go persecute him, some Christians in Damascus. And as he is going, uh, suddenly a great light shone from heaven. He got knocked off his high horse. And it says this, uh, it says, and fall, this is uh, Acts 9, 4. And falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's right. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who is the, where is Christ? He is in his persecuted church so that the persecutors are actually afflicting the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is Jesus is especially present with and in his persecuted body. And we see that Jesus is glorified in his saints, in his persecuted church. It says this, 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 10, when he comes on that day, talking about the second coming, to be glorified where? In his saints. He is glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. How is is it that Christ is glorified and marveled at in his persecuted church? Um, Mona is a Christian who lives in Iraq and uh, she says it's great to be a Christian in Iraq. You want to hear her travel brochure uh, recommending her Chamber of Commerce uh, brochure recommending moving to Iraq as a Christian? She's, she says this, when you live in Iraq, you have the privilege of being persecuted for your faith. Here we have to pay a high price for our faith. Displacement, discrimination, and sometimes even death. But is, listen, this is what she says, but is it not a privilege, is it not a privilege to die for your faith rather than die of cancer or Alzheimer's or any other illness? That's crazy talk. Who would say that? That makes me marvel because I see Christ in Mona. 
She says, we solved the problem of death long ago when we believed that we will be raised for eternal life. And then she quotes from John's gospel. Jesus said, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I see our victorious Savior in Mona and in others like her, and I give Jesus glory. So why do we need to learn from the persecuted church? Well, maybe you remember uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, who was released uh, after two years of imprisonment. Last year, it was in October of 2018. Uh, he had been a pastor for years, I think over 20 years in Turkey. And, the, and he was winning people to Christ in Turkey. Turkey is like you know, 99% Muslim. And so uh, the, the authorities arrested him and falsely accused this gentle, gentle man of terrorism and put him in jail and kept him there in harsh conditions because he was leading people to Jesus Christ in a Muslim country. Well, Pastor Brunson believes that Christians in the U.S. will suffer more for Christ in the near future. He says, I have a sense of urgency about this. This is why we need to learn from these people. He says, I have a sense of urgency about it, that the next generation is going to face a much more hostile environment than it is even now. It's coming quickly, and they're not ready, and many are going to be knocked out, become offended at God, or run away in fear. He says some will seek out teachers who will give them teaching that will justify compromise. He says Christians must find uh, must first have a mindset that persecution can come. If it's not part of your worldview or if you have no expectation of it, then it blindsides you and then it can knock you out. Sooner or later, each person will face the same moment in their lives as Andrew did, and he wants us to be prepared. He says, in the most difficult circumstances, you still have a choice to make, to turn towards him or away from him. We need to turn towards him, and then he meets us. So brothers and sisters, may we, with our persecuted family around the world, always turn to and run towards Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 